you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Follow along as I read. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water so they are filled up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out and now take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. Father, as we open your word and read this morning, and as we think upon your word and hear your word this morning, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us all to see as the disciples saw and how you revealed your glory and manifested your glory in their presence that day. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a glimpse as well and help us, Lord, uh, to, to, to love you and to follow you with all that we have passionately. And Lord, help us to take this, your word, and apply it into our lives. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would have freedom in this place this morning, that you would move in our hearts and in our minds as you see fit. And Lord, that we would not hinder you from moving in our own lives, but we would be open and submissive to your leading this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The First Sign, Obedience, Purification, and Provision. That's what I think we see in this passage as we, uh, as we look in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs, or the first sign that Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. <clears throat> but before we get into the text, I, I felt like I needed to just speak to a couple of maybe uh, miscommunications or misnomers about this passage just from the beginning as we, as we start this morning. This passage in many ways, and probably you, you, you've probably heard it spoken often, or maybe even have said it yourself. Some reference this passage as a validation for uh, Jesus regarding the sanctity of marriage or the institution, and, 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 and as a validation for uh, the ceremony, the marriage ceremony. 
And they rightly draw attention to uh, him beginning and doing his first miracle here as a sign at the wedding ceremony. But while this thought is certainly provoking, it, I don't know that that's necessarily, in fact, I know it's not necessarily the, the primary goal of what John is communicating to us here in this passage. At best, secondary, perhaps even tertiary. Also, others reference this passage to be speaking of Jesus as permitting the consumption of alcohol. Similarly, drawing attention to Jesus creating wine at the wedding festival, inciting that people apparently were drunk when he created the wine for them to drink. But to make this assertion is really to insert a statement or even an idea into the text that really isn't there. The head waiter didn't say everyone was drunk. He was only making a contrasting statement about the surpassing superiority of the quality of the wine that Jesus created compared with the wine that was already there. I point out that Jesus' day, though, was not one filled with caramel macchiatos and lattes and hot tea and sodas. There were a few drinks that were the option for the day. One would have been water, one would have been wine, and one would have probably been ale. Nonetheless, this passage doesn't primarily deal with the permissiveness of or even abstinence from partaking of alcohol. Instead, it deals primarily with the reality of the glory of God being manifested through Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ being manifested right there in that moment at this celebration, at this wedding feast. This is clear because of verse 11. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And we know this to be the point of, of Jesus' ministry. As he, and, and this is what John the evangelist, is, is, as he's writing this gospel account, this is what he's desiring to communicate to us, that God wants to show through Jesus Christ his own glory and reveal himself to his people. In fact, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we sang about it a moment ago, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the glory of God come down to man and dwelt among us. In fact, a few verses later in verse 18 of chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. And even when we looked at that passage a few weeks back, we said literally what that is saying is Jesus is the one who has come and exegeted or explained God the Father to His people. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here in chapter 2, verses 1-11 through 11, when He turns the water into wine. He is showing us and revealing to us the glory of God the Father and He is manifesting His glory among His people. And so Jesus is the one who is fully capable of explaining God and, and revealing the truth about God to us. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation 
of his nature, that is, of the Father's nature. And our passage this morning is, is concerned first and foremost, then, with the manifestation of the glory of God through Christ's earthly ministry. And so I pray this morning, I pray that God will give us eyes to see his glory like the disciples saw his glory. And give us minds to, to comprehend and to see what Christ is about doing in the lives of his disciples and in our lives as his disciples. That we would be a people who pray, God, let us see your glory in the way that the disciples saw your glory. Let us know your presence as the disciples knew your presence. The whole point of John's gospel then can be summed up, as we've said before, in John chapter 20, verse 31, at the end of his gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, have life in his name. And this is why John is writing so that we might read today, so that as he takes us through and shows us these eight signs that he will show us from chapter 1 through chapter 12, these eight signs will point us to the greater reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In fact, John is careful to use the word sign for miracle instead of the usual word for power to speak of miracle. And he does this because he wants us to see how these eight signs unmistakably point us again and again to this one truth, Jesus as Messiah. John MacArthur, he says this, John catalogs eight miraculous signs that Jesus performed. This is the list. By, this list is by no means exhaustive. There were many occasions when he did more than eight miracles in one day. But out of countless miracles that Christ performed, John selected these eight examples as signs which point us to the proof of Christ's deity. You know, as I began looking at this text and just praying through it, I, I thought, Lord, how? How? What? What are you communicating? Why did John include this, this example? Why did he include this sign here in this passage? And why was it the first one? But I think the setting clues us in as we begin to look and to kind of break apart this passage and see what is going on. The setting clues us into what's taking place. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is this, that Jesus, we see Jesus as the obedient son. I think that's what verses one through five is teaching us. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They're attending this wedding celebration but when we think of a wedding celebration, it's not like a typical wedding that we would think of today or that we would attend today. The customs then were much different, as you could imagine. There was an engagement period that we know of known as the betrothal period then and or the betrothal period. And so it was this about a six-month time where the man and the woman were legally married, but they did not live together, did not consummate the marriage. They continued to live in their parents' home. And then, after six months, there would be a, a celebration. Now, this betrothal period, it could not just be ended as an engagement would be. Like, uh, someone says, well, give me my ring back and we can go our separate ways. That's not 
that easy. In this time, it would have to be a certificate of divorce given. And so what happens is uh, during this ceremony, the bridegroom and his attendants, our, bride, uh, our groomsmen, would, would go with him and they would go to the bride's home and, uh, and they would go at night because they would use torches so that this would be a, a more festive celebration and it would, uh, it, would, it would be more significant as they would go with torches to the bride's home. And then the, uh, the, the service would happen where they would be married, there would be a ceremony, they would sign the documents, and they would go back over to the bridegroom's house. And at the bridegroom's house, they would there have a festival and they would have a feast. And they would go back in procession to the bridegroom's home. The feast could go on for a week. And the bridegroom was to provide all that was necessary for the feast. The feast was more than just a social gathering. In fact, the feast could actually be legally binding if the bridegroom, if he, if he ran out of wine or if he ran out of food, they would have to, they could be held liable legally. And so we see in the story, this is what's going on. There's this wedding feast and we understand that Mary is already there. Perhaps she had some role in helping with, uh, with setting up and helping with serving. Maybe it was a, a family friend. But whatever the case, Mary is already there. Jesus and his disciples were invited and they show up for this wedding. And in verse 3, we pick up where he says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine and as the obedient son, I want you to see how Jesus responds to his mother when she comes to him and says that. In verse 4, he says, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. Now, I want to encourage all the youth here this morning, especially sons, not to reply to your mom that way. Because in the English, it doesn't carry the same, it doesn't speak the same way that it reads in the Greek, right? Today it would, be, it would be parallel to saying ma'am or madam, which is still an unusual way to speak to one's mom. <clears throat> but woman wasn't a harsh reply. It wasn't, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't an abrasive reply. It was a common one of the day. Even though it wasn't common for a son to speak to his mom that way, it was common for a man to speak to a woman that way, to say woman, to address her, as we would say ma'am or lady. And so in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. I think it's interesting that it's here and at the end of the Gospel of John where we see Mary in the picture. And after this point in the story, in the narrative, Mary drops out of the scene. And we don't see her again until... John 19.26, but Jesus says similar words when, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple. He's hanging on the cross, whom he loved, standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so we see this, this word woman being used to speak to a lady, and Jesus uses it to speak to his mom on two different occasions. But he asks a question. He says, what does this have to do with us? Literally, what does it have to do with you and me? What does this matter concerning you and me? 
In other words, what he's saying is the the need for wine has nothing to do with our relationship. And it was a polite way of Jesus telling his mother, you have no place in this. Mary here in verses four and five must learn that she's no longer to view Jesus as a son who abides by her commands. Instead, she needs to begin to view him as a savior and she must learn to abide by his commands. Jesus uses this word and this phrase to distance the relationship between he and his earthly mother. In Matthew twelve forty six, Jesus was speaking, and while he was speaking, some people came to him and said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak with you. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who, is, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus was making a definitive statement that he would not let any earthly relationships determine his timing or deter him from carrying out the Father's will. And he was being directed by a determined hour when he says, my hour has not yet come. He is looking forward to the hour that would culminate on the cross. And Jesus must manifest his glory at the Father's discretion. And this means for him remaining submitted not only to the Father in, in what he's doing, but also to the Father's timetable for how he is about doing it. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for what the Father does, the Son does likewise. One commentator writes, In the Gospel of John, the entire life of Jesus was directed toward obeying the Father and fulfilling that hour. The hour that Jesus is speaking about is the theme that John highlights throughout the remainder of the Gospel of John. In chapter 7, just a few chapters forward, in verse 2 and 3, his brothers are trying to do the same thing that Mary was doing there and also trying to do the same thing that Peter was doing when he confronted Jesus and said, I won't let you do this. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on man. Well, the brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And in verse 6, Jesus says, My time is not yet here. And in verse 8, he tells them, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. In chapter 7, verse 30, So they were seeking to seize him after he had been teaching. And no man laid his hand on him because... His hour had not yet come. And in chapter 8, verse 20, similarly, after he had spoken these words in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But if we look forward into chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, and then he 
as he's turning his face toward Jerusalem and toward the passion, he answered them and he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 12, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. For Jesus, the hour would culminate in his crucifixion and in the glory of his resurrection. And so in John 13, 1, now before the feast, the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, it wasn't time yet for the full revelation of Jesus' glory, but the sign that he was about to perform would unmistakably point those who saw to the reality of Jesus' divine power and authority. You know, I'm sure that this was a difficult moment for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She had to yield and submit to the father's working in the life of her son, this baby that she had raised. And certainly she had watched him learn to walk. I mean, this, he was, this is real, you know. And she comes to this point where she's exercised this certain, uh, this certain uh, parental guidance over his life. And he's probably about 30 at this point. And it's as if he draws this line here. And as she has to yield and submit to the father's working in the life of her son, I think it's a reminder to parents today that there will come a day in the life of our children where we have to let go of that parental authority and we have, that we have in their lives and we have to submit to God's leading as he is leading them. It's also a reminder to Christians that each one of us mustn't put requests and petitions of our family or our friends or our brothers or sisters before that which the Lord is calling us to do and walking in obedience to him. And that's the reality of what's going on here. Mary is coming and asking to do this thing, but he's saying this has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with me and my father. And I think this passage challenges us to look deeply, to look for God's direction in our lives. Too many times we allow the desires of others to determine our actions, and we don't truly discern God's leading in a matter. We're kind of like shifting sand that, that, that changes, and it changes with the tide and with the flow of the waves. I think what we see Jesus doing here is laying hold of that which he knows to be the Father's will and tenaciously hanging on and not giving up. And for you and I, I would encourage us to take that away from this passage and to see how Jesus is the obedient son. And I want to be careful that I'm not telling students or children to disobey their parents. That's not at all what we're saying here, right? What we're saying is for us to be discerning as the Lord leads and as the Lord directs. Some, some parents may not be believers and just may not be able to understand why God would be working in your life in this way and not be able to comprehend what the Lord is actually doing. 
Or some parents might, might struggle when they, they hear that their child or they learn that their child has received a call to maybe to go into missions or to move across the country because they believe that's what God is leading them to do. Or maybe even to move on to the other side of the world. These are, I think, real examples of what happens. And we've got to be careful as parents not to influence. I'm sorry, Aaron. You need to stop. We have to be careful as parents not to try to influence our children in a way that God is not desiring for them to go. I think we also see perhaps here where Mary's wanting the best for her son Jesus is not necessarily what God had in mind, or was not what God wanted for Jesus to do. And so Jesus, in following the will of the Father, has to tell Mary, this isn't about us, but it's about me and the Father and I think we must be careful not to place obstacles in our children's way as they grow and, and move out of the house on their own. We want to encourage their obedience to God. But, but practically speaking, this can be difficult. It can be so difficult at times to navigate these waters and learn how to do this. And so I would encourage the older ones of our, uh, the older generation in our congregation who have walked through these days. He'll be okay. All right. It'll be all right. I want to encourage the older generation that has walked through these days to invest in the younger generations that have those days coming up. And Crosspoint has been excellent at doing that and, and generationally investing in the younger generations and, and walking alongside and discipling them. And I want to encourage us not to give up on that, not to stop doing that. As a young parent, I need that. Encouragement. I need that wisdom. Jesus exemplifies sonship to the Father, and He encourages us to uh, He encourages us to walk obediently as well as sons and daughters of the Father. To walk obe- not let anything come in our way of walking obediently to the Lord. No earthly, no familial relationship should hinder us from walking with our God. And following him. Secondly, I think we see in this passage that Jesus is the uh, the new way of purification. He is the new way of purification. In verses five through eight, Mary just says to the servants, "Whatever he tells you to do, do it." Just, I guess she knew he would take care of it in his time. As he saw fit. And so she tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. But you know, the situation was dire. The wine had run out. And for this day, it was a very big deal if the wedding feast ran out of wine. Commoner Binnick's saying was, without wine, there is no joy. (laughs) And the wedding ceremony was to be a time of joy. The feast was to be a time of feasting. In fact, the prevailing thought for the Jews was, according to Psalm 104.15, wine gladdens the heart of the man. And so Jesus, being there, looking over, he sees these six stone water pots. 
and he commanded the servants to go and get some water and fill up these water pots to the brim. And each of these water pots held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. And so these pots were used, he tells us, for Jewish purification in verse 6. The Jewish custom of purification is what these pots were set there for. And so these stone pots were to be distinguished from the earthenware pots that could be used as well because earthenware pots could become contaminated or unclean. And these pots were specific because they had been carved out of stone. They had been whittled out of one big block of stone. And they would be used as the people would come and they would ceremonially cleanse themselves. They would wash their hands, even at times would bathe using these big water pots. And I think Jesus intentionally chooses these water pots that are sitting there in verse 6 because of what they represent. For the people of Israel, for the Jews, they represented purification. And it points for Jesus, he's, he's pointing to his own death on the cross as he already stated, my hour has not yet come in verse 4. And it would be by his death on the cross that he himself would make purification for the sins of the people. And so there's an intentionality when he chooses these six water pots that are used for purification for the people of Israel. And now he's saying that he is the one who is going to provide the way for purification. F.F. Bruce comments in his commentary, the reference to their purificatory practice here gives the clue to the spiritual meaning of the present narrative. The water provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremonial, which Christ was to replace by something better. As the water pots were empty, it showed that the people there at the gathering, they were outwardly clean but inwardly, they still needed cleansing. The ceremonial cleansing of Judaism was insufficient for true cleansing before God. And that's what Jesus is showing us. Another commentary says that Mary's statement, they, they have no wine, is a theological statement about Judaism. And, and it's now meeting its Messiah at this very first miracle is significant. And that Judaism's vessels of purification are now being filled with new things, that being the wine that Jesus is going to create. And so John is telling us that the, the, the new wine is the glory and the gospel of Christ. And it's superseding the way of purification required by the law. And in the gospel of Christ, God has provided the best wine in the person of Jesus Christ, he has provided the very, very best. And ultimately, the blood of Christ is the new purifying agent that cleanses man of sin. We'll see in a little while this morning how the juice or the wine is to remind us of the blood of Christ that was spilt on the cross of Calvary so that we might have forgiveness of sin and that we might be cleansed from sin, that we might be purified and washed. And this is connected for him. This purification, these pots of purification are symbolic for what Jesus is bringing in in the new 
wine. It isn't by religion that we're purified before God, and it isn't by good moral and ethical conduct that we're made pure before God. It's only through Jesus Christ himself. Purification before the Lord Jesus Christ comes through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And that's it. That's the only way that you and I can be pure before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the blood of Christ spilled at Calvary. As I was just kind of walking through this in my own mind and praising the Lord, the hymn that came to my mind was Jesus Paid It All. I'm sure some of you, maybe most of you know that hymn, but the, the chorus, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And then I love the verse that says, For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. It's an amazing truth that Jesus himself has come and he has become the new way of purification for the people of Israel. And it's by the work that he is looking to when he says, my hour has not yet come. He is looking to the cross of Christ as that which he is headed toward. He's set his face toward that hour. And what he's doing as he's performing these signs, as he's pointing people to see the glory of his deity, that he is, he is the one who has the authority and the power to do these works and to do these signs, and that he is the Messiah. We also see in this passage that not only is he the new way of purification, but Jesus is the source of great supply he is the source of great supply. This is a tremendous truth. He is a source of great supply in specifically two ways that I want to look at in a moment. He is a source of great supply in quantity, but he's also the source of great supply in quality. In quantity and in quality. Verse 11 tells us this is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This being the first or the beginning of his signs. This is the one that Jesus uses to initiate his disciples seeing his glory. And so he comes to this event socially. He comes to this event, this wedding, and he sees these purification jars. And he says, here's, here's what my glory is revealing, that I am the one who will bring purification. I will replace the old with my life. I will replace the ways of purification with my blood. And as he's pointing to his glory, when he does this sign, he is teaching and showing them that it's by him that he is the one, the promised Messiah to come. And so we know what signs are. We we have roads that are filled with signs, right? They're good. They tell us where to go. They warn us of danger. They warn. They teach us that we're on the right path, that we're going the right way. And for John, the sign reveals something from God that was hidden before and the miracle was that Jesus would turn this water into wine and it reflects that he is creator and the one who exerts authority over all things. 
Jesus is the very source of this great supply, this quantity of wine. You do the math, right? Six pots, 20 to 30 gallons each, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. This would be enough wine to supply the wedding for at least a week. But Jesus provides abundantly. He supplies abundantly. And we see in verses 9 and 10, Verse eight, he said to the waiter, draw some out and take it to the or he said to the servant, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And in verse nine, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and he didn't know where it was drawn from, though the servant knew where it had been drawn from, the head waiter didn't. The head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely. Then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, you have kept the best for last. And so as the head waiter tasted the wine and calls the bridegroom and makes this statement to him, I think this is a theological statement about Jesus. You have kept the good wine until now. This is a theological statement telling us about Jesus and John is telling us that Jesus is the best and that he has come now as the best he is the best for being purification for the sins of the people and he's telling us that which the world has to offer is inferior in every way to what Christ has to offer That which the world will give is inferior in every way to that which can be found in Jesus Christ. That's the point of what John is telling us as Jesus has revealed his glory and manifested his glory in multiplying the or creating the wine from water. And so both in quantity and quality, the blessing of Christ is far greater than any seemingly worldly indulgence or any worldly pleasure that can be offered. And listen, church, if we could be gripped by this reality, we would not be enticed by the lust of the flesh. If we could daily, moment by moment, remind ourselves that Jesus himself is the source of great supply in everything. Even as we come this morning and we lay our our offering before the Lord Jesus, we realize that He is the very source of the supply that we have. He is the very source of all that we have. And He gives us abundantly more than we ever need. The blessings of Christ are rich. They are enduring forever. And they are so much better and sweeter and richer than anything this world has to offer. The bridegroom served the best wine he had at the beginning. It was the best. But it paled in comparison to the wonderful taste that the head waiter tasted when he drank the wine that Jesus created. Jesus is the best and God has sent Jesus Christ into the world and he has revealed his glory. 
his disciples believed. They had already believed in him, but it was it's a sense of their faith was strengthened as they saw the glory of Christ. And I think it's the same in our lives as we as we walk with Christ and, and grow in our faith. And we see the Lord work in, in marvelous ways and perhaps heal people or, 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 uh, or raise someone who is who is lame. We see things like this happen where where healing happens or we see converts come to faith in Christ. And these things are are used to strengthen and encourage our faith. And that's what's happening here as his disciples are walking with him and seeing what's going on as he's uh, as he's creating this wine from water and manifest his glory over creation as he is able to create. And so we see in this passage, Jesus is the obedient son and that he doesn't allow earthly relationships to interrupt or to deter him from following and carrying out the father's will. Jesus is the new way of purification and it's only through the blood of Christ that a man can come before the Lord Jesus and be made clean and be made pure. It's only by the blood of Christ that one can have eternal life and enter into the abode of the father And Jesus is the source of great supply in Christ. His children never lack what is needed and always have everything that he desires his children to have. There is contentment in Christ. There is peace and joy in Christ. There is a uh, a sense of 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 knowing and, and trusting and walking with the Lord and There is joy as we walk with the Lord and follow him. So I want to challenge us this morning. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, the elements in a moment. I want us to search our hearts and I want us to ask ourselves, are there are there family, earthly relationships even that are deterring me from following God and walking in obedience to God? I want us to ask ourselves, have, have we come before the Lord and experienced the cleansing and been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have we, have we ourselves come to Christ and been forgiven of the sin in our life and been cleansed by His blood? It's not about church attendance. It's, it's not about ritualistic religion. It's about knowing Jesus Christ and walking with Him. And do you know... The contentment and joy of walking with one who provides. In Christ there is provision. Maybe not everything you would want. But certainly everything that you need. There is contentment in Christ. There is joy in Christ. So let me pray this morning. Father. We come before you. And are mindful Lord that we are so imperfect. We are mindful, Lord, of our great need for you. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you could create wine from water and show us your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross to forgive us of our sins and making a way for us to be pure, the only way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you reveal the Father to us and that you walked obediently as a son and you teach us even how to walk obediently to God our Father. And Lord, we ask you this morning that you would 
help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to engage and to partake of uh, this wonderful, joyous celebration, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you now to stand.